Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Furl Academy and Law School Life and Beyond coaching series. I'm your host, Aaron Baer, and I'm a partner at Renault & Co. and also the co-founder of each of 4L Academy and Build Your Book. When you're in law school, it's so hard to know exactly what being a lawyer is like in practice. And it's hard to understand how everything you're learning ties to what you might do when you're a lawyer. So each week, I'll be interviewing a different lawyer to learn more about their practice and answer some questions from a group of 1L students at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at Ryerson University. So without further ado, here's today's episode. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by Lakin Afolabi. He's a criminal defense lawyer, a marketing strategist. He's the only lawyer I've met in the pandemic that wears a bow tie and looks exactly like his picture on his website and is way better dressed than I am, although that is a pretty low bar. Uh, so Lakin, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for the introduction. All right. So I want to start out. You're, you're a criminal defense lawyer, and you know I, think, I don't know how many people want to go into criminal defense necessarily. And we had someone come before and she did this amazing job of explaining like, you know, why criminal defense defense was so appealing to her and really helping to articulate, you know, why she likes it and, and what the public gets wrong. But I'm curious, you know, on your end, how did you end up as a criminal defense lawyer? What was your journey like? And I know you went to school overseas as well. So I've always wanted to be a criminal defense. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I've always wanted to be a trial lawyer. Um, I was particularly, and I might be dating myself, I was particularly inspired by watching the O.J. Simpson trial like every other 11-year-old um, during that era did. Um, and uh, that was a joke. No 11-year-olds were watching the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, my, my, dad would, my dad would listen to it and he'd get really mad over, over, uh, over Mark Furman's testimony and whatever. But I, I think that left an impression on me. A lot of times people... Um, like I, I had the skill set to be a lawyer. I'm a pretty decent communicator. I'm quick on my feet and I do well with surprises. So that kind of lends itself to criminal law. So I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I realized civil litigators don't actually do trials. They just threaten to. So I had to be a criminal defense lawyer to, to brush up on, to, or not to brush up, to develop trial skills. So what do you what do you do? What is a normal day when you're working at the law firm, uh, you know, on one of your bigger files or maybe someone on your team? What is what does that look like as a criminal defense lawyer? Are you in court every day? Is that a rare occurrence? Like, like tell me a bit about what goes on. So I, it depends on how you structure it. Right. Right now, I, I, uh, I have a lot of children. Um, I'm married to a Nigerian woman and they are the most fertile woman in the world. They have an average of eight kids. Seriously. Nigerians have an average of eight kids. We're below average, though we only have five. Um, but I, uh, I, I'm structuring my practice to kind of take me out a bit more and more. Um, prior to that, I was in court every day. I'd be setting dates or I'd be running trials. Right now, I tend to only deal with serious, complex matters with higher paying clients. And then I mentor my, my juniors a lot. And I do a lot of administration. So when you're when you're a run your own business, especially when it's a small business, you are the human resources person. You're the person that's dealing with accounting. You're the person that's dealing with internet problems. You're, you're dealing with snow shoveling. There's so much administrative things that I never signed up for that I have to take care of. Um, I often have to authorize purchases for people. So I, I do a lot of that. I do a lot of marketing and strategy. I'm building websites and I'm very, very into that. Um, but if you if you went, if you wanted to be in court every day, you could be doing that. If you want to be running bail hearings, running applications, I used to do that. Like for a lot of my career was me actually doing very much lawyer stuff. But it, it takes it. It's taken and it does take its toll on you. Um, 
So I've been uh, I've been trying to work less and and take care of your mental health. People don't talk about mental health. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your mental health. I, I can't tell you enough times how important it is. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm I'm kind of old enough now where I'm like, yeah, I'm not invincible anymore. I used to be invincible, but I'm not anymore. Um, so I, I've been trying to slow down and focus on my family. And, and yeah. So when you talk about taking a toll, I'm curious, was that, is that more your experience just with how much you were working or also the nature of the work you were doing? Because I mean, I know you're dealing with, you know, sexual assault, domestic violence, other, you know, serious stuff. Uh, and so I'm curious, I guess, was it the kind of work or was it just the volume or a little bit of both? Uh, both. I, 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 take, I take trials very seriously and I wear them. Um, when I lose, it's, it's tough. When I, not when I lose. Some people are like, yeah, like, yo, bro, plead guilty. I'm going to lose this. But some cases you're like, you pour your heart and soul into it. And, and people don't see things your way and you are sure you're correct. And someone's liberty at stake, you, you wear I don't know any criminal lawyer that doesn't second guess themselves. I have this, um, here, I'll try and pull it up. But yeah, like I don't know. And like lawyers way, way better than I am. Um, they deal with the same thing where you, you, um, where you just, you just wear, wear the lack of success. Um, there was this quote by Mary Hennon where she's just like the, the tough ones, the ones you lose are just are the toughest to, to get over because you, it shatters your confidence. Um, and, and I just thought maybe it's because I'm crap. But when I hear lawyers like Hennon and Greenspan and real lawyers, not like grimy London no-name lawyers, like real lawyers, when they echo the same sentiments, um, it, it really kind of, it shows that it's not you, right? But that, that is something that's, 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 it keeps you awake at night. I, I remember when my very, this is, like if, if, if we want to get personal, if we want to bond here, if you want to know what's going on in my world, my very first superior court trial was a sexual assault where I was completely convinced of my client's innocence. And I poured my heart and soul into this trial. And midway through the trial, I, I had a vasovagal response. And I was like, this is embarrassing. But I know, I know all about that. Uh, I, was, so. I, was crying, I was crying on the floor of the law library. And I was just, I was just a mess. I was carted away on an ambulance, um, by an ambulance. Um, and throughout that trial, I was having the same reoccurring nightmare and I couldn't figure out why. I was having the same reoccurring nightmare. Like, you know, like the movie nightmares where you sit up and you're sweaty, like those kind of nightmares. And I've never had those nightmares before. And I was having the same nightmare, exact same fact scenario until the trial was over. And my guy was sentenced and never had the nightmare again. Um, and then he was convicted, of course, because he was sentenced. And it turns out that he actually was guilty, which really just messed with my mind because I'm like, you lied to me. Um, so, so like I've been in the hospital another time for trials because I, I fight hard. Like I take it seriously. I'm going in there to win. right? Like I, I, I'm not just like, oh, my grandpa was a lawyer. My dad was a judge. So I had to go to law school just to like I, I want to be a brawler in the courtroom. I've always wanted to. And I take it very seriously. And I I I. I so there's two schools of thought. And if I'm going too long, Aaron, just, just interrupt me. But there's two schools Not of just thought. Just keep going. This is perfect. So, some people say never get emotionally involved. Never get emotionally involved. You only can do your best. You're, you're only a cog in the system. And then some people say if you are not emotionally involved, you are not doing your job correctly. I, I think I'm the latter in the sense that I have to be able to get into my client's world to defend him or her property. It's always a him. 
I, I know like women never, <laughs> I'm never defending women for crime. It's always dudes. Um, it, but I have to be able to get into his world to understand the jeopardy, to understand the fact that you are going to go away for five years, that your kids will go hungry. Like I need to appreciate that and carry that weight with them because no one else does. The state doesn't care. The prosecutors don't care. Like no one cares except for me. And, and it's, it's a very, it's a very significant burden. So when I go and I, I wear that and it's taken its toll on me. And I think that's why I'm somewhat re retiring because I don't want to get to the point where I'm like, Oh, whatever, this is just another file. And I'm cynical and I'm indifferent because these are yeah. people's lives. And I, I don't want to um, get to the point where I'm burnt out. And then, you know, I'm, I'm doing Coke and you see me walking down the streets, muttering incoherencies saying that guy used to be a decent lawyer, but now he's a crackhead. So, so I guess my question for you is, you know, on the one hand, I love that you're so passionate. Like that's what everyone deserves. And I think I struggle with this too. I really care about my clients. The difference is, I guess, my clients are not going to jail. You know, there's money on the line. There's their business. There's their livelihood in a lot of ways, but you're dealing with life, death, or maybe more liberty, I guess. So, right. you know, you describe one extreme, which is sort of where you are. You describe the other extreme. And I assume the right, the optimal place to be, you know, I guess the advice you might give to someone else who wants to be a criminal lawyer is sort of, aim a little more towards the middle or, or what advice would you sort of give to somebody? Cause obviously, you know, you're describing the toll it's taken and I'm sure your clients are obviously super appreciative, but at the same time, you know, you got to figure out that balance. So what's the advice or what does that look like? I don't, the best lawyers I know favor my school of thought. Um, I, I think in order to, and maybe not, some people are, my, my advice would be don't be a lawyer if you're not willing to pay the price right like like or become a solicitor i i don't i don't know I, I i in order to properly represent someone you need to get in the shoes if you read the book by jerry spence he talks about it. he would live with his clients and see their lives and see what they went through so he could understand them um i, I think that and this guy never lost a trial this guy's like 90 years old never lost a trial so um I think the answer is don't don't be a lawyer, right? If if you're not if if you're not willing to get punched in the face, don't fight in the UFC. If you're not willing to deal with anxiety and depression, don't be a lawyer. <laughs> so on the one hand, I almost say like you know, are you would you would you encourage someone to do criminal offense? I guess or because I feel like you're so passionate about what you're doing, but at the same time, it sounds like you know there's a toll here. And I guess maybe I'll switch my question to be. How do you take care of your mental health? How do you navigate these scenarios where you're going through this stressful process? It's tough on you because you care so much, but you need to be in good shape for your clients. And obviously you care about your own mental health. You've got kids, a spouse, all of that. So like, how do you handle that these days? Um, a, a few months ago, I was like, I don't have a hobby, right? Like I used to have hobbies and then like, it's just like work and kids. So I, I, I like I was telling you, I, I, cook, I just made sourdough. 458, I took the sourdough out of the oven. I ran upstairs and logged in. It's cooling on the rack right now. Um, I've, I've, I cook a lot. So I just like to do things that have nothing to do with law. If you can see my LinkedIn, I'll post photos of things I've cooked. And um, I, I'm doing that. Just, just getting a hobby, I, I think it is something good. Understanding that you are more than a lawyer, right? Your identity, like before you went to law, you were someone, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a mom, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're you're someone's best friend. Like there's so much more to you than law and you can't have law deprive the people that love you from everything else. So I, I, I found a hobby and I'm realizing that there's, 
when I started, I was just a single 25 year old that was just running around doing nothing. Right. But, and, and I, I've realized that I've changed now. So getting a hobby and realizing that there's more to me than being a lawyer. And my, my, my I'll just, my, my mom said this, I have a sister. Um, my sister's a physician. Uh, and my sister, when she was going through residency, it was, it was very difficult for her. And my mom's like, yo, you need to slow down because if you burn out and die, someone else will take care of your client. Like you're not, you're not that important. We're all replaceable. <laughs> We're all replaceable. Hey, if we get a heart attack and when I was carted out on a stretcher from the courthouse, life went on. So you don't just don't push yourself to that limit, right? Life will go on without you. So, you know, before we were born, there were lawyers. After we're long gone, there'll be lawyers. You're not that important. And you're, you're definitely replaceable. So rather than forcing someone to replace you, take a break. I think it's uh, such a great point. And it's a lesson I've had to learn. I think there, there's always, just like in law school, there's always more you can be doing. And in real life, there's always more you can be doing for clients or, or more work to get. And I think it's been a good lesson. Like at some point, y- your body can't handle that. You don't want to get to that point where, where you're that stressed or that anxious or all those things. And there's going to be moments of that, obviously. Um, but you don't want that to be indefinite. Uh, Lacken, question for you. Um, I was, uh, in, after, you know, uh, we, we interviewed this person, uh, we brought them in who, who was a criminal defense lawyer before. Between then and now, speaking to you, I was at a family event and, and some of my wife's family was like, I can't believe anyone would be a criminal defense lawyer. Like these people are terrible. And I was like, no, like, you know, it's not the case. She was really struggling. And, and I'm curious, I guess, when you know, do you know a client's done something wrong? And I know there's this whole school of thought, I think, about like what you don't want them to tell you because you've got obligations. But I'm curious, like, what is it like? You must have clients where you believe they've actually done something wrong, but yet you're still advocating for them because they have, you know, they're innocent until proven guilty. What, what is that like for you when you're going through that process? It's, uh, it's easy in the sense that there's, there's not the weight of a, in a you're not having nightmares. <laughs> Right? The only nightmares you're having is they might get acquitted. No, um, I don't have those kind of nightmares. It, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. I, I get asked this question so often that my wife could answer it. Um, and I, I usually start by quoting John Adams in his defense at the Boston Massacre, where he says, it's more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished for guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that all of them cannot be punished. But when innocence itself is brought to the bar, and condemned, especially to death, the subject will exclaim, it is immediately whether I behave well or ill, for virtue itself is no security. And if such a sentiment as that were to take hold in the mind of the individual, that would be the end of all security whatsoever. So my job as a defense lawyer is to protect innocence and to hold the crown to the strict burden of their case, because we should not allow the state to take away people's rights without showing evidence of their wrongdoing. It's not good enough to know that they did it. If you know that they did it and you don't have evidence that they didn't did it, or if the prosecution messes up, then we have OJ, right? Um, you need to present evidence of the wrongdoing beyond a reasonable doubt. So if we, if we agree that, first of all, the burden of proof rests on the state, secondly, that the standard of proof is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then we necessarily must agree that there will be guilty people that go free. And that is a benefit we all enjoy. Otherwise, we'll look at Middle Eastern people and we'll say they must be a terrorist because they're speaking a different language and they're dressed funny. And we'll look at young black males and we'll say, hey, Raekwon over there is a gangbanger because he's driving a nice car and he's black. And we'll look at, I don't know, 
some other group that has stereotypes. What are white men stereotyped for? And we'll, we'll accuse them of that and we'll throw them in jail for being white collar criminals or, or, or whatever, right? That's not how it works. We need due process and we've agreed implicitly that we are okay with guilty people going free because we do not want the innocent to suffer. So the easier it is, and we could change this, this standard and a lot of crazed blue haired feminists during the time of Me Too gaining a lot of steam. Can I say that? Is that offensive? During the time of Me Too gaining a lot of steam, we're like, oh, we should lower the standard of proof for sexual assault. And I'm like, no, no, we, we really should not lower the standard of proof for sexual assault because the easier it is to convict the guilty necessarily, the easier it will be to convict the innocent. So my job is to make it as hard as possible to convict anyone so that innocent people will not be convicted. And that's obviously not saying the current system is optimal by any means. I mean, I'm sure you, you would, I actually, I'm curious, like, you know, I'm sure there are so many biases you see in the system, whether it's against the accused or against victims and putting them in unfair positions. And I'm curious sort of some of your thoughts on that. About biases in the system? Yeah, that you deal with on the criminal side. There, there, there are huge biases in the system. Um, there, there are biases, there are racial biases. There, there's incredible bias, like the stuff that some of my female colleagues put up with. And the stories I hear from people, and I, I say, like, I, I got some stories. I'm a black male. Right? I, got some, I got some stories of my own, right? We could sit here and talk stories. But some of the stuff that, that female lawyers have to put up with is, is, is atrocious. Um, so there's biases for counsel. There's biases for the indigent. There's biases for the unintelligent, right? Like, we, we, we are, and you might not agree seeing some of our colleagues, but lawyers tend to be intelligent people. And we can digest facts and we can make decisions a lot more quickly than someone with a grade eight education that was abused all their life and they've just overcome an addiction. Um, their biases to the impoverished, their bias, there's incredible, there's enormous racial biases. So there, there, are, a lot of, there are a lot of biases. Um, and it's very difficult to measure biases because first of all, people don't want to admit their biases and people want to deny their biases. And it, it, not to sound too like, kind of like Marxist dialectic here, but people in power want to maintain their power. Sure. So they're not going to really address those biases, especially if those biases are in a system that's set up to benefit them and, and maintain the, 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 the bias. This is some like real critical race theory stuff that I'm saying here. Some people get real triggered by that. <laughs> um, I don't think this audience necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, and like, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious that the system is set up by those in power with the interest of them maintaining that power. Um, so, and, 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 and it, it's difficult to address biases because some people are offended when you point out their biases, right? People don't want to talk about, and I'll, again, interrupt me if I'm ranting, but I'll just add this point. People don't want to talk about their prejudice. Like people, I, I hear people say, oh, I have no prejudice in, in me. Um, I'm not racist at all. And I, I think that's absurd because I'm, I'm a black person that's been called the N-word so many times. Uh, and sometimes it's been in an endearing fashion by, you know, brothers. The, the, but sometimes it's a hard R, right? The N-word, <laughs> right? And, and despite that, I, I have racial prejudices. And I catch myself exercising these racial prejudices as someone who's lived a lifelong existence of facing racism. So when I hear someone say, I have no prejudices, I'm like, oh, that's, that's just absurd. Humans have prejudices. 
Um, so we, we need to address our prejudices and we need to be free and open and, and able to discuss our prejudices so we can identify like them. Yeah, and I think certainly in the current system, I mean, I think the legal system throughout is rife with bias. Obviously, you're seeing a whole different ballgame than I am, you know, as, as a criminal lawyer on my end. I mean, I don't think people understand how long it just takes to go to trial in the first place, whether it's right. civil, whether it's criminal. I'm dealing with this file now. Uh, I'm not a litigator at all. It's a, it's a corporate file, but it's going to go to litigation. And the other side is pretty sure they've committed fraud, but the dollars aren't that high. And they're basically trying to say, look, like you're going to waste so much money trying to sue us. Uh, so why don't you settle for this nominal amount, even though they've committed fraud, even though they are defrauding CRA. Oh, wow. Uh, but I'm not allowed to threaten that and, and all that stuff. You get into different rules there. But it's just one of these things where, you know, the system isn't fair, not to mention the biases that are, are going on. But Lacken, I can tell, you know, you're passionate about being a criminal lawyer. Um, for people who are in law school uh, and, and are being told, you know, you have to be like this to be a lawyer. You need to do this. You need to do this. And if not, it's not for you. You know, what advice do you have for people? Because I've seen so many lawyers of different shapes and sizes, all of whom have sort of found their niche over time. Being conventional is overrated. Being unconventional is underrated. Um, there are so many ways to practice law and just be, be, do what you want, especially in 2021, right? Like, do, do what you want. Be unconventional. Be creative. Do, do, do what you want. There's, you don't have, everyone thinks, oh, I got to work at a big firm, crazy hours, run down my body, gain 40 pounds in my first two years, and then I'll pay off my student debt or, or whatever. And, and no, no, you don't. You could, you could make money. I make, I make 40,000 a year. My office, I don't make this because I got over it. My office makes 40,000 a year off notaries, signing signatures, right? If I wanted, I could actually like scale it and be a notary public, no liability. Be creative, be unconventional, right? It's not, all, and, and the lawyers chase prestige. Why do you want prestige? Like, listen, prestige doesn't pay my bill. I got, I don't have prestige. No one knows, knows me, right? Like I'm not published. Like no one, no one gives, a, no one cares about me, but I'm chill. My life, my life is good. I make my own hours. I come, I left the office today and I put in a loaf of sourdough. My kids are excited. I'm about to make butternut squash soup and like, a bunch of stuff that like real Canadians eat, right? <laughs> right? Like my, my life is good. It doesn't sound so bad. In fact, that sounds very different than a lot of lawyers I talk to. So, I mean, clearly, you know, you found something that works for you. I'm sure it didn't happen overnight. You know, you didn't come out of law school and have this kind of success and this kind of schedule, but you've clearly followed your passion. You know, it doesn't mean it hasn't always taken a toll on you because you care about your clients, but, but clearly, you know, you've gone down a path that wasn't set by others for you. And I think so many lawyers are following this traditional path and they're unhappy about it. And, you know, I really caution people or suggest like talk to people who are in these jobs. And I think the tough part is sometimes getting them to be honest about it when you don't know them. Like when I know these people, it's different. I get honest answers, but you know, a lot of people are trying to justify they're happy. And I can say there's a lot of unhappy younger lawyers and older lawyers who are working too much, don't like what they're doing, all this kind of stuff. And if you follow the money, if you follow what you're being told to do and you know, it's not what will actually make you happy because you're not interested. Like you won't like it. And I can tell you, you know, the big firms, for example, they've been raising their salaries nonstop throughout the pandemic. So like for like a decade when I started, nobody, they hadn't raised salaries in ages. And in the last couple of years, they've been raising them more and more. And people keep leaving, uh, partly because they're going to New York for higher salaries or California, but partly because they're like, I don't want to do this. Like, it's not a money issue. It's a quality of life issue. It's a time issue. It's a kind of work issue. So don't let anybody tell you, you know, you need to work at a big firm. You need to be a corporate lawyer. I mean, literally the things I did. 
Uh, <laughs> don't let anyone tell you you need to do that. I actually like what I do, but it took me a while to find my niche, the kind of clients I want to work with, the way I want to practice. And it's super unconventional. And I got criticized all the time for like, you're not being a lawyer or you're wasting your time doing these things. I'm like, no, no, I am being a lawyer. I'm just doing it my way in a mm -hmm. modern way and in a way that works for me and is authentic. So I think it sounds like that authenticity is probably a big thing for you. Well said. Mm -hmm. All right, I wanna get into some real legal stuff here quickly because we got some bail assignments. I know some of the people here are working on. So uh, firstly, what's it like in real life? You know, you've got someone, um, got a bail hearing, like, like walk me through what it feels like in their shoes or in your shoes, I guess, for that process. And then what do you do to prepare? I don't prepare much for bail anymore. Um, that's to say that, that I, I know the law and bail very well because I've done bail hearing. In 2016, 2017, I did a ton of bail hearing. Um, bail is more of not so much about your litigation skills. It is, it is about your, um, your ability to put together a plan that satisfies the court of the consideration. So in bail, you have the primary section 515 of the criminal code. I don't know if you guys read it, 515 of the criminal code, primary, secondary, and tertiary grounds. The primary grounds are whether or not a person's a flight risk, the secondary grounds are whether or not they pose a threat of committing a crime and that crime is going to endanger the public. Um, kind of, I'm kind of saying this fast. And then the third tertiary grounds are whether a reasonably informed public would lose confidence in the administration of justice, having regard to various factors, including the way the crime is committed, strength of the Crown's case, whether or not a firearm is used. And I think there's another factor that I'm not recalling very quickly. Um, so typically we want to present a plan with sureties but the law has said that there's an over-reliance on sureties, but basically a plan that says this person is going to follow the condition. And you present that to the court. Having good sureties always works. And I, I, because of the clients that I represent tend to be higher end and they have people in the community, I present the church sureties, their employed mom comes in, their employed dad comes in, and, and they generally get released. The challenge of bail is when you're dealing with someone that is transient, might not have a fixed address, doesn't have a lot of ties to the community, has a record, has breaches, has addictions, has mental health issues then you're trying to convince the court that first of all that person is going to come back to court and then secondly that that person's not going to commit another crime even though they have a history of committing crimes those are bail hearings are a lot more challenging not only because of the client but because of the lack of resources the law works really well when you have money not so much when you're poor um so those, those bail hearings are a bit more challenging and you try and really humanize the client. I, I think it's very easy for us to dehumanize people that we can't relate to. Um, these are people. These are people that have had really rough lives. And if you explain that, hey, I've, I've, I want to get custody of my kids back. I've, I've been clean for 60 days, which is an accomplishment for some people. It is. It really is. Right. Um, and you, you present the plan. I'm willing to go to counseling. I, I have a, I have a temporary attempt temping at this agency and all that stuff. You present that plan to the court and you try and uh, show them that uh, this person is going to, going to come to court and is going to try and stay out of trouble. And these are the ways we're going to keep them out of trouble. So that's, that's how I prepare for bail hearing. But a lot of times my, my clients are, are intelligent, they're more articulate, and they have ties to the community. It's a lot easier. My associates get the legal aid files. <laughs> and it's a lot more challenging. And then I'm like, hey, I never lose bail hearings. What's wrong with you? And then they laugh at me because my clients all have you know, more money and more people. So this sounds like it's somewhat, this is not just stating facts cut and dry, like in a boring way. This is really telling a story a bit. Like, how do you sort of handle the facts? Is it just how you weave that narrative in? Is that sort of the art here? Or So my bill hearing submissions always start, I always, I've done this so many times, I'll say, 
you know, I always want, I want to start with the law. <laughs> and this fundamental principle is that everyone has a right to reasonable bill. That's everyone. It doesn't matter what crime they did. Murderers have rights to reasonable bill. Um, and then the second thing is the, the, uh, the presumption of innocence. We very well could have an innocent person. We could have the wrong guy in here. This person is presumed innocent. And um, the, the burden of proof, it's the job of the crown to prove this, to, to show cause why the person should be detained. And then I say that we can counter this by presenting a plan that addresses the primary, secondary, and tertiary grounds. And then I go through each of the sureties and why that surety is a good surety. Hopefully the surety actually is a good surety, not a co-conspirator that the court doesn't know about. Um, and I, I lay everything out and yeah, the court makes a decision. Typically though, in the bail hearings I've done, the crowns will, will concede. If you guys wanna know a great case for um, bail is Zora. I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Zora. It came out like 2019 and it really changed the law on bail and really favored defense. Basically everyone's getting bail after Zora and Antic. Um, bail is not as hard now as it was when I first started. That's good to know. And I think they've, they've learned about that one. So I've got a question for you that comes from somebody uh, here, which is, you know, there's going to be facts on your side. Those are pretty easy to deal with that, that goes well into your narrative. But there's also going to be facts that are less on your side, maybe not ideal, but they are reality. So how do you handle those? I'm assuming ignoring them is generally not the answer because the other side's going to bring them up or you'll be asked about it. How do you, how do you deal with those facts that you sort of wish weren't there, but, but they are? I address them head on. Um, try and provide creative explanations for them. I'm, I'm very, I'm a, I'm an honest lawyer in my litigation factor, in my litigation practice, right? Like I, I don't, if there's a bad fact, I'm like, he said it and there's nothing we can do about that fact. And if that's, that's a reason that you're going to, you know, make a negative credibility finding, so be it, but make sure you're interpreting it the right way or whatever. I, I make concessions all the time and, and the bench thanks me for it rather than arguing positions that I'm going to lose. So I, I can see them, I, I identify them, and I point them out. And I'm even sometimes I'll even make the argument like, oh, he was found with a bloody knife. The Crown's going to, of course, tell you that that's because he's the murderer, because he was found with a bloody knife. But how many times have we seen Gord Ramsey with a bloody knife? Does that mean he's a murderer? <laughs> or something like that, right? Uh, but I'll, I'll, make, I'll make the argument for the Crown. I'll say the Crown will argue this. And of course, that's a reasonable argument, but this is my counter to it. But I, I, I address facts on head on, head on and, uh, and uh, honestly. I, I don't, there's nothing that I hate more than a, a disingenuous litigation. Like if, if concede where you got to concede, focus on the real issues and that's brawl. I, that, that's my style. Some lawyers will disagree and they'll fight every issue just to be antagonistic, not me. And I'm, I'm guessing the criminal bar is not very big. Like, like you develop a reputation pretty quickly. Uh, I don't know about a good or bad lawyer, maybe as a pain in the ass and somebody you want to deal with or not. You respect, you know, and I'm curious, like, like do you find there are those lawyers where they just don't have a good reputation, whether or not they're good or not? Like they've, they're so combative, sort of like you're describing, whether it's the court's the judges who must know them, whether it's the other lawyers, that they're actually doing a disservice to themselves, or yeah. So, so some I think there's skilled. There's the there's the person as a lawyer, like the person, and then there's the lawyer. Some people are good people and bad lawyers. Some people are bad people and good lawyers, and some people are just bad people and bad lawyers and good people and good lawyers. So yeah, people develop a reputation not only because of their advocacy in the court room but also because of who they are some people some lawyers are just vicious like i know some prosecutors that i personally i like them 
right? And they're the type of person that I'd hang out with and, and have a beer with. But in the courtroom, I don't like them because <laughs> they're just like, they're, they're, they're just, I don't like how they do their job. So if we're not running a case, we'll, we'll be chatting and we'll be talking. If we are running a case, I'm just like, you're, you're so unreasonable and you're difficult. Um, but some people are just nasty all around and antagonistic. And some prosecutors relish the role of a villain, right? And I've, I've, I've seen that some counsel, they want to antagonize, antagonize you, right? And if you don't respond to them, they leave you alone. So they'll say like deliberately inflammatory things. And then you're like, how could you say that? That's outrageous. And then they're like, oh, you think that's outrageous? Well, this, and then they'll up the ante. And then you get, and then it just escalates. And what I've learned is someone says, you know, someone says, oh, like, we want to bring back the death penalty for your guy stealing a Red Bull. Like, oh, is that right? Yeah, I, I understand. I understand where you're coming from. And that, that ends it, <laughs> right? So they, 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 they don't, you don't play into their game and then they're disappointed because they're trolls. And going back to these 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 facts you described, you know, you're an honest lawyer, which I like. That's my style too. Like, you know, you you, you know, try to find some reasonable compromises. Don't waste people's times with stuff that we all know, you know, like happened or or isn't worth fighting about. So, do you acknowledge those bad facts both at the hearing and in the written submission, or is it just at the hearing where you're saying, you know, there's these facts that aren't so great? No, if I don't do a lot of written submissions, but with my fact out, I'll concede points. I, I always want to concede points and streamline things. It really earns me the respect of the judiciary. And when the judiciary thinks you're honest, they will, de- they will be very deferent to you. Like I've had judges think suspiciously of me because of miscommunication or, or whatever. And then they're, they're scrutinizing everything, right? Because this person's suspect. But the flip side happens. If you're trustworthy and if you're willing to concede and show case law that doesn't favor you and, 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 and if, you're, if you're committed to the truth, you will earn the respect of judges and they won't second guess. And you'll also earn the respect of counsel, right? Like Crown Counsel, like, oh, Mr. Afalabi said this. I have no reason to doubt him. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm happy with his undertaking that he'll produce proof. It, it saves you a lot of time, right? All you have is your reputation. And I'm guessing you're dealing with a number of clients. Their level of sophistication or familiarity with the system, let's put it that way. In an ideal world, they are not repeat offenders. Um, so, you know, how much of a role do they play in terms of, you know, you're going to them saying, this is what I do. I want to concede these facts and admit them. Or like, how does that work with you and the clients? Or are you unilaterally, let's use the bail context here to start. Are you unilaterally deciding sort of that strategy or are they involved too? It depends on the fact. At the end of the day, it depends on the fact. And some decisions are for counsel to make, some are for the client to make. Um, on, on major decisions, more and more, I'm trying to in- involve my client. I had a I had, and every law society, I've had a few law society complaints, um, and I've been cleared of all of them so far, the ones that have been decided. Um, and after each one, I just kind of get tighter with my instructions. So my, I have a pretty, I have a lot of checklists. I read the book Checklist Manifesto, you should read it. Um, a ton of checklists, a ton of ways to just make sure that I'm, I'm liability proof. And every now and then something pops up and I'm like, oh, I didn't turn my mind to that and I do it again. So I, some things I discuss with my clients, some things I don't, depends on, on the exact issue. But the major things, even the minor things, I like to have a paper trail. Um, and I'll often discuss the major things multiple times. So I'll, I'll get it over the phone, I'll have it in the conversation. And finally, when it's time to pull the trigger, I'll have very tight written instructions. Yeah, I think that's one thing you learn, whether you're a criminal lawyer, corporate lawyer, any kind of lawyer is, you know, that conversation that's not recorded, if, if, the, if the result ends up not going the client's way, you need some way to sort of prove, you know, some evidence in writing that this actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, you paper your file, I guess, these days more metaphorically, you know, through an email that you hold on to or whatever. 
but it's definitely something that's really important, especially, you know, it sounds like these law society complaints, I'll take your word for it. These are most likely, I assume, clients that didn't like the end result and are saying, well, it's Lacken's fault. Is that sort of how no, you there was a guy. It? I don't know if you saw this. The guy that spray painted my name on the courthouse. No, the, I did not see this. Court, no. Yeah, some guy spray painted my name and a prosecutor's name on the courthouse. And then I was hit with a law society complaint afterwards saying, but I don't even know if I should go into it, but just some insane stuff. Um, but uh, I, had a, I had a good file. <laughs> Do you ever feel like concerned for your, your safety? I don't mean from a mental health standpoint. I mean, I know there was some stuff, for example, earlier this year in Toronto, um, an incident at a firm where someone was unfortunately targeted, but do you ever fear, you know, your own clients or, or people like that? Or Generally, no. Um, people that are mentally ill, I'm, I'm careful around them, depending on the mental, and I shouldn't say that, people that are mentally ill, half the bar is mentally ill with anxiety and depression. Um, pe- people, people that are, are like, are, are prone to psychosis um, and, and violent uh, mental illness that could result in, my, in violence that have a record of that, I, I tend to be cautious, but I don't deal with that clientele so much. The, the most threatened I've been was this guy that spray painted the courthouse, he spray painted the police station, and he spray painted my neighbor in an attempt to spray paint my building. But because I don't know why, he just couldn't figure out that my building was next door. He ended up damaging my neighbor's building. That that shook me a little bit, um, but that I don't I don't think I've been I've been uh, I've been like I've I've had some really scary looking dudes. I had this one dude. He like I'm a tall guy, right? I'm I'm six two. I'm a pretty tall, skinny African running around. But this guy, how he was like six eight, covered in tattoos, two hundred and eighty pounds, and he walks into my office, and I'm like. Yo, man, he hasn't, he hadn't said anything and he wasn't charged with anything serious, but just how much larger, he, and I'm a large guy, right? I'm always the tallest guy in the room. So when this 280 pound, like Shaquille O'Neal looking dude walks into my office, I was a bit intimidated, covered in tattoos, but that's not, that's, that's based on prejudice, right? Yeah, just because yeah, you have yeah. tattoos doesn't mean you're a mean dude. So generally, generally I feel safe. And I'm curious on your end, you've got a second thing you do. You do some marketing stuff uh, for other lawyers. And I know you've got a little social media presence of yourself. So maybe talk a bit about that. What do lawyers, why do they need your help? What are they doing poorly? And what is your social, your branding or your sort of marketing go? Because I think for a lot of lawyers, they don't think about this stuff in law school. But eventually, if you're going to stay in law, you want to get clients. And this stuff becomes really important. Internet marketing is very important, especially nowadays when you're breaking into a saturated bar. If you can make your footprint on Google, you could get a lot of clients. And, and I, I think as, as a, someone who's not native to London with a funky African name and as a minority, prejudice pay, plays a part. And I think the internet digital marketing has been a great equalizer for people to see that I'm competent and I'm capable uh, as an advocate. You should really be, you should really be t- paying attention to your brand. A bunch of people check your Google ratings. Um, it, it's very important that, that you do that. So I help lawyers with marketing, helping help them build websites and explain the importance of the website. A lot of people see what use websites as online resumes. And I see them as, as essentially a street team to bring people into your club, right? Hey ladies, where are you going tonight? Why don't you come to this club? That's what your website should be. It should be getting people into your club so they could pay money and buy drinks. It's not to talk about all the accomplishments you have. So I, uh, websites always talk about credibility, visibility, and convertibility. Um, and I help lawyers with that. As far as social media is, uh, check me out on TikTok. I got 120,000 followers. I'm TikTok famous, apparently. Um, it's uh, style attorney. Um, 
so I, I just make videos and people leave comments. Someone called me a coon on TikTok. I responded to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm on TikTok and I make videos. Some of them are funny. And the, the handle is style attorney. Yeah, not, not doing too badly, uh, which is pretty impressive on, on your end. And I think a lot of lawyers haven't embraced social media in general, not to mention TikTok. And I think there's a couple that are doing a great job and it's, it's paid off big time. So uh, it doesn't all have to be uh, serious stuff. It can be fun and games a bit and build a profile. So I think for anyone out there, I mean, time starts now, I think, to start thinking about that brand that will carry with you. And obviously it, it's early days, but just think about that. You know, if you want to stay as a lawyer, especially in private practice, you know, that brand, whether it's credibility, whether it's getting clients, whether it's having the quality of life where you don't have to work quite as much and making those choices, you have clients, it's a little bit easier. So Lachan, I want to end with this question, which is really uh, the one I asked everybody, you know, what advice would you give to your 1L self or maybe to the 1Ls that are here with us today or might be listening? Don't break your cufflink while you're doing a webcam chat. Um, <laughs> in, in addition to that advice, um, do, do you, like, do you, legit, do you, because just, no, no one, it doesn't matter, you don't need to be like everyone else, you don't need to, you don't need to fit in, you don't need to impress anyone, right, I, I, I spent a bit of my career trying to impress people that really, and trying to do things not to offend people that really didn't matter, and then it came to them, like, they don't pay my mortgage, they don't, they don't pay my salary, why, why, why do they matter, right, like, do you like people might make fun of you because you dress like how I, I like how like I dress I, I used to get when I started off as a new member of the bar I dressed outrageously and people said stuff that I, I initially it kind of bothered me and I was like oh well haters gonna hate and I remember this was there's a pivotal, pivotal moment um she's a judge now but she was a lawyer that I, I looked up to at um Justice Leroy Janine Leroy and she was she was really nice to me as a lawyer she was the big she was the big time lawyer here and by this time she was a judge. I had this outrageous blue suit. It was just like, it was, it was like cobalt blue, super bright. And every time I wore it, people would make jokes like, oh, I need my sunglasses. Or like old white dudes will say, you know, I just can't pull that stuff off because I'm a white dude. And just, I just get the same comments all the time. And people would, would, would say things and it started to bother me. Like I just dress the way I dress because I, I just want to dress like that. I'm not trying to prove it, but that's just, that's just me, right? So I was right in the escalator with uh, this judge and she said, Where, where's your blue suit? And I was like, oh, I, I don't wear it so much because, you know, I, I get a lot of comments and, and, and you know, maybe it's, it's, uh, it's more appropriate for like a big city like New York or something. And, and she said to me, she's like, is that, is that a true representation of who you are? And I was like, it is. She's like, then you shouldn't care. Just wear it. And it's such a simple, it's such a simple conversation, but it had a tremendous impact on me. And, and that was like the haters going to hate. Uh, conversation like people all these people that will talk behind your back and say things and hate on you and not say who cares who cares just be yourself if everyone's applying like my brother's in law school right now and he's like yeah i want to be an advocate and he's all talking about well, all my friends are applying to base i'm like bro do you want to apply to these firms or are you just doing it because everyone else is doing it? if you want to do it then do it by all means if you want to be a corporate lawyer and work crazy hours do it but if your goal is to you know Go back to Nigeria and fight off the exploitation of the resources and be an international lawyer, then you you owe it to yourself to do that. If your goal is to represent unpopular causes that'll get you pilloried and you you live and breathe those causes, then th then do that. And if your goal is to 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 be a whatever your goal is, pursue that. 
don't don't do don't don't be scared of people making fun of you or talking behind your back or saying you're flashy or whatever because those people really don't matter they, they really really don't matter so that would be my advice to you Just and i think that's that's you. great advice there's so much pressure i feel like especially in law school but also in the world in general to to fit in to, to do what you're supposed to do if you have good grades or or if you're, you're a certain way and i think you know you're a great example of someone doing it their way, who's been successful and working in a really interesting area of law. So Lachan, thanks so much for joining us today. No worries.